Dear Lord Jesus, I give you this hour. Lord, I ask that you work in the, in the plan of multiplication. You know, Lord, what these parents need. You know what these teachers need. And so I just ask, Lord, that um, as we work in the plan of addition, you work in the plan of multiplication. And that, uh, Lord, you just accomplish what you want to accomplish in these hearts. In your name, amen. So the first thing you need to do when you are doing outdoor education um, is to establish an outdoor classroom. Um, because the outdoors can be scary because it's too much, too many things to distract and too many things. That's why teachers are like, no, I don't want to take them outdoors. I can't. Where do I begin? Well, just like you have in a classroom in your home, probably like this is your homeschooling spot. Maybe it's just the dining room table, but you still have a spot that you go to. Just like when you think about you have that time, they encourage you for devotional time to have that spot you go to. You need to have that spot you go to in nature. Um, and it can be simple. It can be a tree. And that, is your, and that is your classroom. That doesn't mean that you don't branch away from your tree, but they still get that feeling of a classroom outside. It can be a bunch of logs that you set up into a circle, you know, and you have your husband or you yourself cut down the stump, right? And then you just section off and stack your little logs and make a cute little circle. Um, you can get as fancy as building a gazebo. You can do a teepee. My, my, I have an awesome friend um, who teaches third and fourth graders, and she has a teepee. She's built a teepee. It's not impossible to build a teepee, and it's not extremely expensive to build a teepee either. Um, get creative. Talk to your kids. Say, I want to get them in this. That's, this is outdoor education. This is what's cool about outdoor education is they get to facilitate their own learning. So talk to them and say, what can be your classroom? How do you want your classroom to look? Are we going to build a wilderness survival shelter? And that's what we're going to have school in. You know. Um, so you want to start with that. <clears throat> And then um, after you do that, then you can use all of God's nature for your classroom, but you still have that, that idea and that box of I go back here for school. All right, so with science, science is definitely one of the easiest ones to do outdoors. Um, I like to do thematic units. Um, it's really easy to do for kindergarten, first and second. It's really easy to do, honestly, all the way up through eighth grade. Once you hit high school, you have to accept that it's separate subjects, and that's okay. Um, <clears throat> that just means certain subjects you can take outside and certain subjects like history. Lord, I don't know why I'm teaching history. Um, you need to keep indoors, okay? Um, and that's okay. But the K through 8, try to do thematic units. So what I do is I love to do a year plan. Um, I love to sit down and look at my curriculum and do a year plan. And so I divide everything by nine weeks um, because that's how we work in conference schools with nine-week systems. And I, I base it on my science curriculum because that, to me, is the easiest to include with outdoors, and then I can base it on the seasons that I'm in, and then I align my reading program with those are the kind of books we read, and I, and I, like my history, my social studies doesn't always quite fit, but for example, like communities, you know, if we're talking about um, earth science, you know, it's a little bit easier to go out and about for like field trips if I'm talking about communities, so I also think like, okay, with, his, with social studies, I think, all right, this is what the weather's going to be like in Michigan, this is what I could take them outdoors to do, all right, so I start with my science. And there's, like, there's four sections with science. Usually, usually there's life science and earth science and physical science and human body. I think it's health science. It's like the four. And so usually um, that's how I then start. And I arrange everything, even my Bible stories, and I play around with all the other curriculum to line up with those four things, if that makes sense. Because simply um, science lends itself just naturally to the outdoors. Super easy to do science outdoors with almost any lesson in science. So some really cool things that you should think about at your home, depending on where you are, is, um, is building some different things to make, to make um, 
options for other learning environments. So such things as you want to create little mini ecosystems to help your kids observe. So you can start with bird houses. Um, there's incredible um, bird, I have to remember where I put stuff on this. Looking at a computer is way harder than looking at. Okay, yeah, so on page four, um, there's build a birdhouse. And there's a lot of different really cool like things online where you can um, follow what other birders are doing and, and see like observations and you can join bird clubs and all these different kind of things. I have to remember where I put that website. If I didn't put it on there, I will send it to you. Just make sure you guys give me your emails because I have more stuff to share um, with you than just these three printouts. But I don't want to print out tons of stuff to be honest, because I'm a go green kind of girl. And a lot of times people get lots of handouts and then they just end up in the trash. And so um, I'm happy to forward you um, all sorts of cool ideas. But birdhouse is a great thing. Another thing that you should think about starting is a bat house. Um, our bats are actually in trouble. I don't know if you know that with the, the white nose syndrome. And um, there's a really incredible bat program going on right now where it's very scientific based where you have different like charts they're making and so you can throw your more advanced math in there quite easily because you're doing stuff. Um, and I don't know why I'm not finding my bat idea on here. I'm sorry. I think it's, I really thought that I had the bat one on the science one. Well, maybe I have, don't worry. It is to be found. The thing is I've presented this a couple times in different ways and so sometimes I get confused about which one that I've presented where. So the bat ones is a really awesome idea. If things aren't in here, don't worry. It means you're getting it in another way, but it is coming because you will get all my resources. So I'll just, I'll just talk and you can, I don't really, I'm not gonna really necessarily just go through this page by page because I don't really think that's as helpful. So I'm just gonna give you lots of ideas and then you can keep using this for other ideas if that makes sense. Um, so bats houses, bat houses are really awesome to build. They're pretty simple, but then you get that math because they have to measure and cut and nail and do all sorts of cool things. Um, and then there's this whole big database that has you do different bat projects to observe what kind of bats are coming, how many bats are coming, and it's actually you're actually helping science. You're helping current science because the the organization wants to know how our bats are doing in the world. In the, in the US in specific, okay? So that's a really awesome thing to be a part of. Another thing that I think is a really cool thing to do is to um, transform your schoolyard or home yard into a butterfly rest stop. Um, that's on page two. Um, help restore butterfly migration uh, routes by planting seeds of indigenous pollinating plants to provide nectar, roosting, and food for caterpillars. Hollyhocks, for example, are host plants uh, for the painted lady butterfly. Uh, lupine for the Carner blue butterfly and milkweed for and honeysuckle for monarchs and other pollinators. Um, and I don't have to read that all for you, but the really cool thing you'll see about outdoor education is it requires research, which um, is, a, is a great skill and it, and it helps then cross all the curriculums. And I don't know about if you get this push as a homeschooling parent, but as a regular teacher, they're always trying to tell you not a regular, I'm sorry. As a, as, a, as a classroom school teacher, they're always trying to tell you, make sure you cross the curriculum. Make sure that you use multiple subjects at one time. Well, that's the cool thing about outdoor education is it it just mandates it. Like, there's no way that I can figure out how to design a butterfly garden without having to do some research, without then having to do some writing, without having to do some statistics, without having to do a, a little bit of, like, figuring out, is this plant going to work as this plant? You know, in, in my area, in my neck of the woods, what butterflies am I trying to attract? You know, what, trying to, what kind of birds will I reach out to with birdhouses? 
Um, so for me, when I did my master's, I had a huge paradigm shift in the way that I was thinking because I always heard um, that, you know, God is in nature and that it, you need to connect with God in nature. But when, when I did, I kind of mentioned this before, when I did my master's, I realized that literally the earth was given to me as a gift. And it is my job as his creation to take care of it and to preserve it. And so in what ways are you encouraging your children to take care of it and preserve it in your own backyard? You know, and so by studying the local ecosystems, by studying, you know, what used to live here, what, what does live here, well, now you can enter into history because then you're also figuring out, you know, what is the local history in my area? What Native Americans used to live in my area? What animals did they live off of? And instantly, as you can see, that's the thing that's crazy about outdoor education is it can take you on all these different rabbit trails. And as a teacher, sometimes that's terrifying, like, ooh, rabbit trail, right? But if you make that year plan, and you know, like, that's what I would do as a K2. I was like, okay, I know by nine weeks, I will have discussed plant science. Now I need to move on to this. Well, I wasn't super concerned if I didn't cover every single thing, because that's the thing about education. It literally repeats, enlarges, repeats, enlarges, repeats. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing, but that's simply what our education does, is enlarges and repeats. But if your kids are doing a really in-depth butterfly unit one year, and the next year they're doing a really in-depth um, endangered species in their areas, are they going to be cheated out of, out of the science that they needed to cover? No, because you're still covering it. Maybe you're just covering it in a different way. And you can still make sure you hit the main points because you're worried, oh, but honestly, like for like plants, they teach you this is the petal. This is the stigma. You know, in the next year, then they add a couple more parts. In the next year, they add a more, couple more parts. And so by you hitting it all more one year, it doesn't mean they're going to know it less. They probably will know it more. You know, your first grader or your third grader will be talking about stuff the seventh and eighth graders discover later on in science, right? So that's what's really cool, and that's why I base my curriculum on science. And then I work off there. Um, <clears throat> another really awesome idea is to make your own nature trail. And this is where I'm really passionate about trying to get your church involved. And I don't know if any of you guys live in areas where your church is, um, is going to work or not, but in Holland, I was really blessed. We live on, the Holland School is here and the Holland Church is here. And then there's a big green area and then there's woods and then there's a little path and there's a little, like a park over there, a really tiny little park with a little gazebo. And so there was lots of ability and lots of things so what I asked one year was that I could build a trail around the parameter of the campus. And it would be about, um, I think, maybe a half a mile to go around the parameter of the campus. And it, it was kind of difficult because it's kind of low in different places. And so what I did was I sent out an email to all the church. Now, this is a bigger church, okay? I was, I was really blessed. It was probably, I don't know, 400 members, maybe 200, 300 in attendance, something like that. I'm not really quite sure. The school, to give you an idea, it's like 35 kids for K through 8, okay? And I, I talked to specific parents, specific fathers, and I had eight fathers show up one Sunday, with one with a tractor and a trailer, and we blazed a trail around my campus. And then my father told me that um, the loggers in your area who have to cut down trees for different things, they are willing to donate the chips for free. And um, what was really amazing is that next Friday, I was taking my kids um, to the nursing home for outreach, and they were going to sing. And as we were driving, I saw somebody cutting down a log, a tree for like the electrical wire. And I was like, guys, pray, pray that when we come back, because there wasn't time. I had to catch the appointment with the singing. I was like, pray that they're still there when we come back. So we went and we sang and we passed out our memory verse po posters and stuff. 
And then on the way back, they were still there. And so I said, excuse me, um, I teach at Holland Avenue School. It's like three miles away. Is there any way that I can have your wood chips? And they're like, yeah. And our company also, and I can't remember the exact hours, but it's like 30 to 33 hours a year we do community service. It's just part of our program. So if you talk to us, we will come and work at your church and school for free and help you build your trail. We'll come down and cut logs. So I don't know if your church is in the area, um, but they, they dump load, like, load after load and pile after mountain of pile of wood chips at my church. Like, I mean, that hill kept growing and growing because until I told them to stop, I got free wood chips. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know if there's a trail that you could start that everybody could enjoy um, someplace. And maybe it's even worth even checking into your local community. I mean, how cool would that be is that your Adventist church or your Adventist school built a trail in your community, you know, and then that, that trail... It might have limitations, obviously, about if you can put God in it or not. But then what's really cool is all of a sudden you're talking to your city council. And all of a sudden your kids are understanding how government works. And all of a sudden your kids are writing a proposal. They're writing a persuasive essay. Well, that's high school level to write a persuasive essay. Um, and so that's what's cool and scary about outdoor education is that the possibilities are endless. And, and you're like, wait, how do I get the curriculum? How do I focus? But you have to learn to step outside the box and you have to think big ideas. Every year, what are the big ideas I need my, my kids must know and we'll worry about how they get there, but this has to be covered, okay? Don't worry, is 1.1 in math covered, 7.2 in math covered? Okay, the new math, I don't know if you guys are using Go Math, but oh my, oh me. <laughs> they teach you like eight different lessons to get around to do double digit addition, when really I just want to stack the numbers on the board and say you carry the one, not be like five tens plus seven ones, and then I divide the, I don't know if any, if I'm just talking gibberish, that's math these days, right? Pray for your first and second graders. <laughs> it's hard, hard, hard. So what you need to do is you just need to take time as a homeschooling parent, as a teacher, and look at your curriculum <clears throat> and pull out your big ideas, okay? Concepts. Um, it's, it's <clears throat> Sorry, another method of teaching, if you want to look it up, it's called KUD, um, KUD lesson planning. Um, there's lots of things about that. It's what they need to know. Um, what your goal as a KUD teacher is you want them to think of these three objectives. What you want them to know, which is just the basic facts, how they actually understand it, which is your big concepts, and then applying it, KUD. Um, know, understand, do something with it. Okay, that's KUD. Um, it's becoming more popular, thank goodness. Um, it's something that I'm trying to apply in my history as a high school teacher. Um, I have my kids, I write down my big ideas. So for example, I'm gone now for two and a half weeks from Heritage. They graceful, graciously allowed me to leave because after I'm done speaking here, I'm super excited, but there are Oregon Conference Schools and Washington Conference Schools and Idaho churches that are open to, my, to the message of the Lord and I get to share it. So I get to travel some more after this and share with other areas about things to do. Um, but what I did is that when I left, I came up with big ideas and concepts. So for example, let me try to remember. So for my history, my American history, I wanted them to draw parallels between what is going on with our SDA church and what is going, I'm sorry, I'm kind of taking a tangent, but I think this is helpful if you have history. So there's a point to this <laughs> because history doesn't necessarily go with outdoors, but this idea of outdoor education, outdoor education is the idea that they, they draw out the knowledge instead of we download the knowledge, okay? That is outdoor education. And yes, you'll use the garden as your facilitator, and yes, you'll use the outdoors, but that's the main overall thing is that you're drawing out their knowledge instead of just downloading knowledge into them, okay? So for the history, what I'm trying to get them to do is draw parallels between what's going on in our church 
and what's going on um, in the world. So during Ellen White's lifetime, from um, 1827 to 1915, so much American history happens. I mean, that is during the Civil War. That is the time where our nation is changing from before her time, it's the colonial time, and then it's starting to become a baby nation. By the end of her lifetime, 1915, boom. If you look at your American history books, world power imperialism is starting. How does our nation come from here to him, here? So I started with the Revelation 13 prophecy before I left, showed them how America was in prophecy, and now they are going to draw the parallel. So I put into four big concepts. Technology, what is happening in technology from 1827 to 1915? What is happening in education? Because our, our Adventist education comes at this time. You know, what is the worldly education based on? What is Adventist education based on from 1827 to 1915? A little bit later than 1827, but I just gave that time frame. Um, <clears throat> uh, industry and economics, what's happening? Because our, 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 we definitely moved from a, an agrarian society to more an urbanization society. And what was the last one? Okay, I don't remember off the top of my head. I can look it up in a minute, but I don't want to lose a lot of time. But the idea was those are big ideas. So instead of like, I, they're going to cover the four or five, actually six chapters in their history book that I want them to cover, but they're going to look at it different because they're extracting the information to get to the big concept of how technology moves. And how they're doing it is they're making a timeline, but they're making a timeline of what our church is doing with that and what we're doing with that as, as, the, as the nation. So then they start seeing parallels because... It's incredible to me when our church was birthed. There's a reason our church was birthed at that time. Like, our church was birthed, I'm sorry, I get excited, but our church was because the Civil War happened, and we needed a name for our boys to have the, the right to not have to bear arms. And that is one of the reasons why we started, because we were really anti-forming a church because of Babylon and the idea, but then it was like, our boys have to carry guns unless we become an organized religion. And so that was the date, it correlates, you see? Like it gets really exciting to the kids, but that's that big idea. Do they still learn basic things? Will they learn everything? If, like compared to if I would have taught the textbook, no. But will they remember? Yeah, they'll remember a whole lot more than me just being like, check, check, got that, that chapter done. And that's what you have to step out of. You have to step out of that pressure to finish the textbook by the end of the year and to cover every single concept and every chapter and every section in that textbook, because that is the pressure that is placed on you. And you have to, so you really need to take time to brainstorm big ideas and look at what curriculum, it doesn't really matter what curriculum, if you're using a Becca, if you're, you know, whatever homeschooling one has been placed, a burden on your heart, and that's what works for you, because you understand it as the teacher, then go for it. You can still pull out your big ideas and your big concepts. Building trails. Okay, thank you. The building trail. Okay, thank you. I'll go back to the building trail. Sorry, I apologize. I am organized. Um, the building trail. So the really cool thing about if you facilitate the fact that your kids build the trail, whether it's at your church or in your government, that's how I got on that history trail. The government, Lord have mercy, help me. Um, so, you know, that's a really cool idea if you want to get involved in your local city council. But another thing to do, which, by the way, we need a presence in our local city council. We need to show that we care about our city. If your church closes its door, will your community notice that your church closes its door? And if it won't notice, that's a problem. Are we just doing community service and hanging out free clothes? Or are we a presence in our community? Are we the ones who are, uh, one thing I really appreciate, another great idea to get your church out there and involved, um, back at my mom's school, they adopt a highway. And the span from, I don't remember how many miles, but there's a certain amount of miles that go past the school directly. And it says, you know, those adopt a highway. And then it says the name, it says Goebbels Junior Academy, Pinedale SDA Church. Takes care of this portion of the highway, pick up trash. 
easy thing to do. I mean, you could put your family name down there, or you could put SDA Church if you just wanted to make that as a witness, if you didn't want your name directly on it. But adopt a highway. You know, we should, we should be a presence in our community, not just, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing Bible studies, but we shouldn't just be focused on giving Bible studies because we can be a Bible study. You know, we can, we can live a Bible study for them. And so um, you can, so when you're building your trail, what's really awesome is as you have your kids design the trail, now they have to learn plant identification. Now they have to learn tree identification. Now they have to work out the landscape a little bit. Now maybe there's not a lot of variety in where you live, but as you're designing that trail and focusing on how to build that trail, your kids are very much involved in the learning process because they want to put little signs up. Well, now they need to maybe do artwork. You know, you can just laminate. It doesn't have to be some big wooden poster, you know, or wooden pillar that you use. You know, it could just be laminating. You change them out every couple of years. That's not the end of the world or every year. And, you know, um, so now you have a writing project. Now you, you cross the board of language arts. And that's why I really don't worry about language arts too much because all of this stuff naturally brings in some awesome things. But once again, you just need to look at your curriculum and language arts and see those main points that, you know, like what are they really pressing for you to have them accomplish that year and their writing ability. Um, but then naturally, all of your assignments are going to teach them how to write in those different ways, if that makes sense. So instead of um, a sign that, that talks about the description, it could be a poem, and then now you've done poetry. You know, like, um, instead of um, a research little paper about it, it could be a list of clues. And so now they have to think of questions. Well, when they're coming up with their own questions, that also uses another kind of thinking. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, they have to know the answers if they're the ones coming up with the questions, right? And so there's a variety of ways that you can teach writing style by having them develop this trail. And maybe, maybe the trail is not possible. Maybe there's already a trail near you. You could still ask your community, is there any way my kids could develop um, a trail guide? And it's just something that goes in the little box. If, can my kids be the one to develop trail guides? Is that okay? Are you open to it? You know, if I show you the trail guide, would you be interested in printing it? Would it be something that you could make available to you? Is there a state park, you know, that you could develop a trail guide? And if nothing else, your church would be open to it. You know, your child could do a children's story, or you could start adding nature nuggets. Do you guys remember when there used to be nature nuggets at our church services? I don't know if that was just something that back in my day, but it used to be a section in the church service, a mission spotlight, and there was nature nugget. Um, and they could just use that time, and your child can go up front and be like, I developed this guide, and it could be a Sabbath afternoon activity, but then you just hand out the guides to your families at your churches. You know, you, the biggest thing about this kind of learning is you need to show them that there's a point, and that at the end, they're going to help somebody or help their local community in some way, and that's what's really cool is it, it crosses now, now you're being missionaries, which is the bottom line of education. You know, and that's why we started Adventist Education, and so they could walk out as missionaries. And often I wonder sometimes, are we producing missionaries, not because I don't think our hearts are in the right places, but it's like telling you you're going to be a carpenter, but I never give you a hammer, and I never give you a nail, but go be a carpenter when you grow up. You know, I'm going to describe the board to you. I'm going to show you what a nail looks like. I might even let you touch a hammer, but to use it together, whoa, we're not ready for that. And so any time, you know, you can, you can give them that practical missionary experience, and, and show them that God works in bigger ways than just in the, the Bible study. You know, like God, God goes to the Bible, always God goes to the Bible. But sometimes it's, it's working on cars, you know, working on cars for your neighbors for a day for free or something like that. You know, like just show them that there's many ways to do missionary. And the cool thing is your kids will come up with awesome ways of how to be missionaries. Once you get them to think like this and they realize that their learning is in their hands, 
and they're like, whoa, I can do this, I can do this, you're gonna watch your kids come up with really cool projects that you never thought about. And they're gonna discover things, and they're gonna be future Thomas Edison's and Benjamin Franklin's. Just what you want. You want them to not be mere reflectors of man's thought. You want them to be able to think for themselves. It's giving them the, the power to learn. What did they find interesting? Okay, this is plant science. You really wish they would learn about these kind of plants, but they are really interested in the, in the Japanese flytrap. Uh, then let them study that, you know? I mean, they'll still learn the plant parts, you know? And if they want to go over to another country's ecosystem, America's ecosystems are boring, and they want to learn about the Asian ecosystems, fine. They're still learning the principle of how an ecosystem works together in a food chain. And they're getting the basics, but they're being handed the learning, and they're being able to discover what they want. Um, so some other just really basic ideas um, that I think are really fun is um, in K2, you have to teach the senses, the five senses, right? And normally we bring in the paper bags or we blindfold them in the classroom and it's so fun and it's so cute. Let's take it outside, all right? So what I do is um, I have these printables and I cut out the, the pieces of the things that you use, right? So you use your mouth. You use your hand, you use your nose, you use your eyes, and you use your ears. So I have these giant books that I make, and I cut them out, and then I cut out two blank pieces of paper, so it turns into a little book that looks like a mouth, or looks like an ear, or looks like a nose, or looks like an eye, and so on and so forth, right? And then we go out, and we always start with the eye, because, I mean, you don't have to, but just that's one they're most used to, and some of my kids are not used to being outdoors in nature, right? And this is something that I will now move into that's super crucial, for you um, in outdoor education, that is setting up a sit spot, okay? So the way a sit spot works is it's their spot. It's their, it's call it, we call it a sit spot. All outdoor educators use it from the Christian world to the non-Christian world. To the non-Christian world, they're like, you know, they get a little crazy, like, become one with the nature and start acting like the ants and the butterflies. I mean, if you want to, share, whatever you want to do. But the idea is that they go to their sit spot and they just sit. And what was really awesome is my little ones, I did the sit spot with the five senses to get them into the idea of a sit spot, and then we changed it later, and I'll show you some ideas that I did. But um, we sat there with our iBooks, and they have their little box of crayons. So we have, I developed like these little adventure packs. And in my adventure pack, it's my outdoors, what I need in my outdoors adventure pack. And I have a little box of crayons. I have a little clipboard, because nothing is more frustrating to a child when they cannot do a nice art project. They don't want it to be crummy, they want it to be nice, so they need that hard surface to be able to draw something nice. For your older ones, put colored pencils in there, not crayons, you know? And buy them one of those nice sketchbooks. Um, you can get them for cheaper at Rust or, or um, um, Marshalls or whatever you guys have in your areas, I don't know, but just get them one of those nice um, hardbound where they feel like they actually wrote a book at the end of it, you know, and there's just blank pages. Um, for little kids, you can get this at Hobby Lobby. You know those composition notebooks? You can get them that really awesome for K2 or whatever age you want, but they have wider lines, you know, the wider lines and then the dots in the middle. And then the half, the top half is all blank and the bottom half is for writing. So now they can write and then draw. So I called these Jesus journals. And my little kids would have, when we went out into nature, we always had our Jesus journal, our box of crayons, or if maybe not our Jesus journal, then we had our stacks of paper and our little mini clipboards, and then we had a magnifying glass, and we had our bug kits, because at the dollar store you can get everything. I actually went to the dollar store here, but it's the wrong time of season. But you can get the, at, the, at the dollar store, you can get these little bug kits that like, they can wear around their shoulders, and inside is a little mini magnifying glass and pliers and all sorts of really fun things. Um, that can go into their little bug kits. Um, and with older ones, 
you know, maybe, maybe it's worth looking at investing in um, a nice compass, you know, some things that you know that they're interested in for your older ones that will help them be maybe even a knife, um, whatever you want to do that you think is safe and what, you, what, you, what you're comfortable with. Um, but, but have that like, this is my learning adventure pack and I'm ready to go outdoors. Okay, so back to the senses. So they sit there and what's really amazing is my K2, K2 kids came from a variety of backgrounds, right? Sadly, broken homes, right? Sadly, that's very much persuasive um, in our churches. That's very much alive in our churches and in our communities. So um, they came from strongly media-saturated backgrounds where they were, they were raised in front of a TV where I was boring. Can you imagine a kindergarten teacher calling you boring? I was like, how is that possible? <laughs> but yeah, when you, you're trying to compete against an iPod, let me tell you, you're not going to win. <laughs> um, but eventually, by using nature, I started to win. It wasn't my fun, creative, manipulative ideas in the classroom. It was by using nature that I slowly started to win that battle against the iPod and the TV. But so you take your iBook outside, and you sit in your sit spot. And you allow them to be whatever. I just did this with my friend's little kids, and he picked up in a tree, and that was his sit spot. I said, why not? That's your, he's, he's six. I said, okay, that's your sit spot. So he sat up in his little tree. I helped him get up there, had his crayons and his little um, clipboard, and, and he, he drew everything he could see from his sit spot in nature. Okay, so you give them, and you start out small, because maybe they're not ready, but you really want them to try to expand it to 15. As they get older, 30 minutes, an hour, let them just sit there and explore the world around them. Observe. And that's one thing that they're noticing is because we're always on the go, because our brains are always next thing, next thing, we're not going to be as creative as our past generations because our brain never has time to explore anything. Like it's always on to the next thought instead of dwelling upon something and trying to solve it. Um, with my little ones, kindergarten, I started with five minutes. And I started with five minutes for the first book, but by the second, they were ready for 10 minutes already. I was impressed because let me tell you, that little boy who looked bored, that was his first time in a sit spot. <laughs> he wasn't quite sure what to think about it. Just sit, I want to play. And he was actually a little boy that had a background in the woods, but he wanted to run around with a stick and chase something and swat something. Like, I don't want to sit for five minutes. This is boring, teacher. And I don't like drawing. I just want to, you know, he's outside. It's time for something, you know. And so teaching kids to sit still, this is one thing that I stress too, because they need to learn how to sit, all right? We, we sit in church. We sit to listen. We sit to have a conversation. Like, we don't always have to be on the go. We can engage and sit for long periods of time. It's not scary to have to teach our kids to sit. Um, and that's one thing that I think I, that um, can be a struggle sometimes in homeschool because there's always other things to do. And so compared to a classroom where they just have to sit in that eight hours or whatever or four hours or whatever it is, sometimes with the homeschool, the phone rings or I have to cook or, you know, and so like the kids don't necessarily have to sit for more than 20, 30 minutes. It's not a bad idea to teach your kid to sit for an hour. Um, or if, if you're not comfortable with that, the 30 minutes and then get up for the 30 minutes, you know. It's not, it depends on the age. I don't necessarily try to make my seven-year-old sit for an hour, but teaching them to sit is a good thing to do. All right, so back to the iBook. Um, they draw everything they can see, right? And then it's really important. There's two things that are really important outdoor education. That's the sit spot and storytelling. Okay, which I think correlates way back to like what God wants us to do is sit with him and tell others. Okay? They need to have that opportunity to talk about what they experienced. 
Um, and there's a variety of ways you can do that. You can sit in a circle and go over your iBooks. For your older kids, you know what I've started suggesting to families is that you have like your special rocks and they can write things on rocks or they can bring one thing in and you have this bowl at your dinner table and they can bring one thing in. They're gonna tell a story of something that they did in nature that, at supper table at dinner time, and it's just this bowl, and you can say, can't be anything live, you know, I don't want centipedes crawling around my house, I don't want frogs climbing, I don't know if you guys ever read that, the book, The Salamander Room, I've heard that book, it's, it's one of the pathway reading books, anyways, there's this little boy that I was teaching, and he, he did that at home, he snuck, and he tried to make his room into the salamander room, so he snuck plants in there, he snuck bugs in there, and, and his mom came into his room, Wah! and there's like plants, and dirt, and leaves and you know all sorts of fun stuff in there he took it literally which i think is cute so you might have to set up your parameters like what you want in your house but set up that bowl so that way you can have that conversation because storytelling is huge it encourages them, them to want to have more adventures right because then they heard about their older brother who did this well that sounds really cool and then you need to contribute you need to be having a direct experience with nature too as well you know maybe your sit spot looks different maybe your sit spot's working in the garden Maybe, but something where they see that you observed something and that you saw something in nature that was interesting to you as well. Okay, and it doesn't always have to have a spiritual connection. It could just simply be, I was amazed at how this plant grew, or I was amazed about how big my tomatoes were. You know, it, it just has to be that you're contributing, that you're doing the sit spot in some way and the storytelling in some way. Oh, I just used um, Sharpie markers and we collected like a huge bowl of, of rocks and then they would just write on their rocks um, things like, I can do a variety of things. It could be experiences. And then later when we go to pray, now we have a whole bunch of stuff to pray about. Like these are blessings. Because you know how kids' prayers just get repetitive? Well, now they have their blessing rocks because we just wrote things that we experienced in nature um, on their rocks. Then the next thing I did was I blindfolded my kids in their sit spot like the next day. And now they have to just sit there and listen quietly for 10 minutes and then they take their blindfold off and they get to draw everything that they heard. And then we walk around and um, we, we walk around and we smell things. And then I also sometimes just sit there and blindfold them again and they just have to sit there and see what they can smell. And then they use their nose book to smell. And then with the touching, I let them touch. Now this is really cool because it's a great opportunity to teach them poison ivy and poison oak. And then you can start teaching some plant identification, right? But I want them to touch everything. I want them to feel the squishiness of moss between their hands. I want them to feel the mud. Like how many different textures can you find instead of, you know, if you think about school, we just limit it. This is smooth. This is bumpy. You know, those cute little books. This is sandpapery. This is soft, you know, and they're like, okay, this is the, the feelings. Well, out there, Soft can feel pokey sometimes, right? And, and smooth can also kind of feel bumpy. Like all of a sudden, it's not just perfect, right? Like it's not, it's loose parts. It's unanswerable questions. It's like, wait, my surface can feel multiple different feelings. And if, you know, if you're wondering, is my kid gonna learn? They're gonna learn more with this than compared to this, this one plus one equals two. Okay, got that, thank you. You know, like, um, and then the taste, I did do that one inside, <laughs> simply because at that point I was young and I didn't know a lot of plant identification and so I wasn't about ready to go out there with somebody else's kids and be like, yes guys, let's stick things in our mouths. <laughs> and I didn't really feel like my age group was quite ready for like, you know, I was pretty, pretty sure that if I started letting them put plants in their mouth, they'd go home and start putting plants in their mouth and I don't, 
I don't know what's poisonous and not poisonous. So maybe K2 is not the stage to teach, you know, put everything in your mouth. Maybe wait till they're seventh and eighth graders and they can know the difference. Because, you know, mushrooms are deadly. In the garden. Huh? In the garden. In the garden. There you go. Do taste testing. And this is the only place, guys, that we do taste testing until you are ready to explore outside the garden. You can do that as a homeschooler. As a teacher, I didn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> um, some other just random ideas because I think you'll find that um, once you start thinking this way once you start training your brain to think like this what's really cool is when you start staring at the curriculum you kind of just come up with ideas um, so um, something that I did that I think is a really cool follow your nose activity is super awesome you divide the group in half using an onion and another object with a strong smell have one group uh, rub the onion on trees to mark the trail and the other group has to follow by sniffing the scent you know, and so that's really cool. It gets them outside, and you can decide if you want just to turn that into a writing project, if you want to teach them um, how to identify the difference between garlic and onion, or if you just simply want to teach them the, the use of the, the nose. You know, with, with senses, the crazy thing about K2 material is it's pretty basic. We just have all these dots and lines that they think they have to cross, and if we just learn to think the big ideas, then we'll take the journey with our kids and we'll be like, yeah, I get it. Third through fifth, sixth through seventh, eighth, and all those kind of things. Um, the blind trail, I think, is super awesome. Create a blind nature trail for your students filled with a variety of sounds, smells, and textures that they can experience with their five senses. Keep in mind the elements of variety, theme, and mystery. You can tie knots in the rope at certain places where you want children to notice something in particular, like an interesting smell or texture. Variety can be added in different ways. For example, pick a theme to explore along the trail or add an element of mystery, such as a line that branches off the main rope and ends in an interesting place. Before beginning, go after over safety rules <clears throat> and indicate which side of the rope children should walk on. Also, model how to explore the trail with the five senses so that students won't rush through the course. Encourage silence during this activity, spread students along the trail, and allow them to go at their own pace. Follow up the activity with a discussion of what they experience on the trail. <clears throat> um, so when I was a classroom teacher, um, I have three recesses as a K-2 teacher. I don't know how you guys do that at your home, but I made sure that I had certain recesses that were called green recesses, where there was unimaginative play. They were not allowed to play on the playground. There was off the playground, they just had to go. And I had some kickback a little bit naturally because let's be honest, the kids come back a little bit dirty, you know? But I had to educate my parents and you have to educate um, others about how it's worth the dirty pants, right? And if it means that their school clothes aren't as nice, you know, then fine, their school clothes aren't as nice as they're supposed to be, you know, and that's okay, you know? So their kids come to school and a little bit of holy pants, is that the end of the world? No, you know, but it takes education, right? You can't really like say all oh, these parents are terrible or school boards or our education system is terrible. Like we're just following the, what we were trained. You know, my education at my different colleges, I went to lots. I went to Andrews University for a year. I went to Newbold College in England for a year. I went to Southwestern Adventist University in Texas and I graduated from there. Awesome experiences all along the way, but nobody taught me how to teach like this. But that's because they're following their curriculum. You know, you can't really blame the system. We've just gotten caught up with the system. And we don't know how necessarily to read the book education. I had to read the book education in school. How come I didn't notice any of this stuff? It's, it was all right there, how to teach. But I didn't have the eyes to see them. I didn't have the lenses on. And your kids don't have the lens on to see God in nature. We think that, oh, we're taking them out. No, we have to teach them how to see God. Otherwise, it's just a walk in nature. It's not, it's not teaching them how to see God unless we teach them how to stop and smell. And that's why sit spots are crucial. 
And storytelling is crucial. Just like your walk with God, it's crucial that you have time with him, and it's crucial that you share about him in some way, or it dies, right? Same thing with nature. So decide if you're going to have green time every day with your kids. Decide how much green time you're going to have, but try to have unstructured, imaginative play. If they're building forts, if they're playing cowboys and Indians, you know, whatever you want to allow them to play, just, you know, try to just let them go crazy and be imaginative. And this is where your, their biggest job is going to come in as a teacher is picking out those big ideas so you don't get stressed when a dead opossum comes along and they spend the day digging the dead opossum and you didn't checklist what you need to check off as a teacher, right? Because there's that extreme pressure and it's really hard to get over that hump. Believe me, I am a trained teacher through and through and my mom's a teacher and like I'm a teacher and I want to, I'm I'm a finisher of all textbooks. (laughs) Like that is my goal and every chapter and every page will be crossed off, you know, and like stepping out of that is really difficult for me. But it's, it's just sitting down at that beginning of that school year and saying what is crucial, what is absolutely crucial, but pick out big ideas. And of course, you're probably gonna have to write down as you begin to do this, is certain facts that they need to know. You know, it's not gonna just be the big ideas. You are gonna be like, they need to know the parts of a plant. They need to know so many biomes or so many, you know, those big ideas might have to be picked out. Or like um, the, the language arts, I do think that's crucial to write a list of what kind of writing needs to happen that. And there's certain things like grammar, you know, that might be worth pulling in some worksheets to make sure they understand some grammar. But then at the same time, when those, they're writing those different assignments, you know, you can have one of your other kids edit. That's excellent. You know, have your students edit each other's work. And then they're the editor. You know, as many real-life scenarios as you can put into your education where you're having your students play the role of other real-life scenarios, that will help the education come alive. Um, animal tracking is a really awesome idea. Um, to, to animal track in your area. Um, make a mini pond is a really cool idea. Um, really easy to do with one of those cheap uh, Walmart blue, um, blue little tubs. Before long, you'll get some nice green scum and all sorts of cool things in there. And you can make it better where you dig it in the ground and actually make a pond. Um, one of my friends, <laughs> literally her husband dug her for his wedding present to her. He dug her a hot tub and he used a black tarp. <laughs> and he made her this little hot tub. It's such a labor of love. I don't know how it's working. But I mean, if he can make a hot tub, I think we can make a pond in our backyard, right? By digging a hole and seeing how we can come up with things to get into it. Um, and going maybe even to the, the um, grocery store and buying some 99 cent goldfish <laughs> and seeing too what we can put in there. The question was, how do I get my hours? When I'm trying to do cross-curricular, how do I count, like, um, that makes sure the state, I meet the state protocol. Which state are you under? Washington State. So I'm not super familiar with that because I didn't have anything like that. Plus, I'm not a homeschooling parent, so maybe there's some expertise from you guys. For me, personally, I would just check it, like, all the boxes. Like, um, an hour of math is an hour of math, regardless of the fact that the hour of math is hour of math and English and history at the same time. Um, I wouldn't think that was dishonest in any way, shape, or form. And I could prove if the state ever questioned, I'd be like, look at this is what they're accomplishing in Mastering the Hour, English and science. And I, I don't think it's a problem to check all boxes, whatever was being covered in that hour. The question was, if my first grader is struggling with dysgraphia, how do I help them with the writing section, the sit spot time? So during the, the sit spot time, I do not want them to talk to me. I really want it to just be student-directed learning time and not be able, I want them to learn. I think we need to teach our kids to, 
to have delayed gratification. And that's a really hard thing in this society. And I think that's a really hard thing as a homeschooling parent because unlike in a classroom where I have 15 students to answer, I can't answer your question right away. As a mom, you could answer that question right away, right? Like saying like, I'm gonna step back and let you wrestle with this is really hard and confusing to the child. You're right there, you're available. And the classroom, clearly they can see you're not available, right? And so I think it's a, it's a little bit more difficult. And the homeschooling, so sit spot is super important that it's just your time. And so what I would do is I just have them draw everything. And then when you come back, what I did for my first graders um, is I didn't push them. I don't think we need to push them. And I would write on a sticky note um, exactly what they wanted me to say. And I'd even help them make sure the sentences were proper. And then they would sit down at their desk and they would just copy my sticky note into their little books. I wasn't super worried about as a first grader that they were able to solely write independently or come up with proper sentences. That will come. Honestly, the learning process, we push it on them, it will come. It will come and it will come faster if we hold back. And so if they're not even ready to copy the letters, if that's too much, then, then just have them draw and they will learn how to hold their pencil. You can also get those more expensive pencil grips um, that help them hold their pencil properly and that helps in their writing too. Um, let your child write even if it's not legible. Just let them, let them pretend they're writing a great book and they're the most fantastic author on the planet. And then if they tell you something, they'll probably tell you something completely when the, than what they had in their minds when they wrote it. Because that's just the way they are. They'll probably be like, oh, I wrote about this. And that's probably not even what they really wrote about. But that's okay because, I mean, the point of them getting to learn how to write will happen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.